There's nothing by accident in the Word of God. And that includes the words that are used to describe, as well as the titles that are given to various people or to places. I've always sought to impart to you men and women, young people, the truth that the Scriptures are the infallible, the inerrant, the inspired Word of the living God. They are without error. And God says what He means, and He means what He says. And that includes the titles and the names that are used, whether it is for people or for places. And it is a truth that we see again uh, right throughout this book that is called the Song of Solomon. Now, Solomon wrote many songs, but here's the best. Because we read in the chapter 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It's the very best one that he penned. And it is part of the Word of God. Now in these chapters, there is an interchanging often between those who are speaking. And some modern versions have got it wrong when it comes to my text this morning in that regard. The voice of the one we're going to hear is that of the bridegroom. And he's speaking to his beloved Shulamite. The words that fall from his lips are sweeter than honey, and the honeycomb. He speaks with words of joy and gladness as one who's glad to see his heart's desire. And in the description that she gives of him, you'll find that in chapter 5. She describes him from the sole of his feet to the very crown of his head. And you will appreciate, men and women, that there were no cameras or phones in those days. But what she did was she used nature to describe her beloved. And so you see, for example, verse 11, his head is the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. She uses nature. And you uh, consider even the word that you read there about his lips. She says, his lips are like lilies dropping sweet smelling mare. And this is her beloved. And this is her friend. He is altogether lovely. He is the fairest of 10,000 to her soul. And dear people, I want you to understand, I want you to consider that when you, what you have in this book is a love story. And it's a love story being between Christ and his church, the bride, the one whom he purchased with his own blood, the one whom he gave himself for. And so these words are what Christ says to his blood-bought congregation, or indeed to each and every soul that is joined and betrothed to him by faith. And the personal word that he brings to his beloved on this visit is one by way of invitation. And I want us to notice these words as we bring you to verse 14. O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs, let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. There we have Christ's dove. Christ's dove. I want you to notice the dove. It's not the first time or the only time that he uses such a word in addressing the Shulamite. You will find it in chapter 6, verse 9. My dove, my undefiled, is but one. It is a most endearing term of address. You just look at that verse 
of our text this morning, chapter 2, 14, he says, Oh, my dove. He uses it not for the sake of poetry. He doesn't use it in ignorance. But he uses it rather to express, as it is the case in the other places in the Scriptures, to impart an important truth about the church or the believer. And so if I can use other illustrations just to underline what I'm saying to you, we are often spoken of in terms of the temple. These bodies of ours, that is, the people of God, are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost dwells within. What does the temple rep- represent? It represents holiness. And the Lord says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. But then there's another description. We're described as the pillars. And what does pillars represent? But stability. And oftentimes you will get the pillars in the building of the house of God and they're more than just being ornamental. They are holding up the roof and the other parts of the structure and it speaks of stability. What about sheep? We're described as sheep in the scriptures and the sheep reminds us of our dependence and our obedience to the shepherd. And so it is the same here with regard to the dove. That is a very particular description And I will believe you will find it to be a very apt description. Let me give you some reasons why I say that. A dove is known as a clean bird. They love cleanliness. You remember when Noah let the dove go the first time out of the ark? It came back to him again. Because it couldn't find anywhere to rest its foot. Oh, the raven was different. The raven is an unclean bird. And the raven went forth from that ark. And it was to be able to rest in the carcasses that were floating on the receding water. That's why the raven never come back again. But the dove is a clean bird, you see. And it come back into the ark. And it come with the olive leaf. So there was the hope that the earth again was appearing And the waters were receding, but it didn't rest its foot in anything that was unclean. Men and women of dove is known to clean the dung out of their nests. And the application is obvious. The believer has been cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ and desires to be clean and desires not to be defiled by this world. The believer has a beauty that they never used to have. Maybe that is depicted for us by the psalmist very well. Psalm 68 And verse 13 simply says this, Though ye have lain among the pots, ye shall be as the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and her feathers with yellow gold. The child of God, you see, is washed in the Savior's blood. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're being continually sanctified by the Holy Spirit and adorned even as with that beauty of holiness. The dove also eats grain, not the worms. The dove is innocent. The dove is known as harmless. The dove is known as a very sociable bird. But you know, there are other characters that I believe that we should consider. There is a chastity with the dove. There's a faithfulness with the dove. It is documented that the dove pairs with only one mate. Have you didn't know that? Even to the point that if the partner does anything other than that, then the male will tear the offending male to pieces and the female will do the same to the other female. 
The dove will mourn the loss of one another when one dies and there appears to be an unconsolable and a permanent widowhood with the dove. Does this not remind us, dear believer, today that we are betrothed to one husband? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul writes to the believers, verse 2, he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband. I have joined you, if you like, to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. We are not to commit spiritual adultery as James brings out in his book, chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James uses very strong language there. He calls the believer adulterers or adulteresses. He's speaking in the spiritual context. Christ is our beloved. He is our bridegroom. And we are to be devoted exclusively to him, faithfully to him, with no other rival lover, nothing else, no one else getting in between our love for God. So there is a quality and a characteristic about the dove. There's also a meekness with the dove. There's a quietness and a gentleness and a gracious spirit with it. And as a people of God, we are to have that quiet and make spirit. We are to be blameless. We are to be harmless without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. I would say you can't read Colossians chapter 3 and the words of verse 12 and following and not see those dove-like qualities. Paul's writing again to the believer. He says, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgive you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is a bond of perf- perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. The dove is often associated with peace, with the olive branch of peace. All of those qualities there are very dove-like. Those are but a few characteristics that are found even with the dove. It also has the instinct to allure other doves to itself. And as the people of God, we have been called and we have been chosen of the Lord to allure others to Christ bearing the good tidings of the gospel to them, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want you to consider about the dove that there's a distinctive about her. And that is it is a helpless animal. It doesn't have teeth and it doesn't have claws. Doves are vulnerable in the hierarchy of birds, often oppressed by the birds of prey. They're unable to defend themselves. They don't have that defense. And so we can often identify with that. But we have no might. We have no power of ourselves to stand against our great adversary, the devil. And of course the devil is often likened to the birds of the air that cometh immediately to snatch away the good seed of the word. 
But it leads us on to say that there's one strength that the dove has. And that is her direction. Her strength, you see, is her flight. That's her quality. I'm sure you've heard of the homing dove or the homing pigeon. Maybe you've known those who keep them. I used to live beside a man that had a very luxurious loft for his pigeons. They're let off in some distant field. They're able to make their way home to that loft. God has given her a good pair of wings to fly with. And she is able to use them well. Men and women, the application should also be true of the believer as to why the bridegroom addresses the Shulamite here by saying, Oh, my dove. As doves of Christ, we have no defense of ourselves. That is why we find Paul describing the whole armor of God that is to be put on by every soldier of Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 6. But in the face of the enemy, so often the shield and the helmet is our flight. For when we hear of the roar of Satan, we do not run often into the battle, for we know what will happen. We will end up in his clutches. But instead, we run to the place of our refuge and of our rest. And that is our dove-like simplicity. That's our dove-like wisdom. We find our salvation is in our flight. And the direction we fly is to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is our armor. And he protects us, and he is our fort that surrounds us. Are you familiar with this direction? Are you familiar with this course of action? That we could say, is so keen about the dove, and so often seen about her. But having noted something of those characteristics of the dove, I want you to note her defense. Her flight is her strength, as I've said. But where does she go to? It is to her place of rest. And I want you to notice the refuge that we read about in verse 14 that the dove has. Oh, my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. The refuge for the dove is not to be found in the valleys. Even though Ezekiel writes of the doves there. Let me just read to you Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 16. For it says, But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be in the mountains like doves of the valleys. All of them mourning every one for his iniquity. Maybe she's found sitting there weeping in ashes and sighing, but now she has flown. Is a refuge in the clouds because that is what Isaiah describes the flock of doves in chapter 60 in the words of verse 8. He says, Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? Our dove does not find her defense among the flock because she has already found the nest to which the flock are flying. She doesn't flutter about this way and that way. She's not found to be sitting on the branch of an olive tree as may have been the case with that dove that was released by Noah. Her refuge instead is found in the cleft of the rock. 
She hides herself in the cleft of the rock. The crags of the mountains. And if you think back to her studies, and we'll get back to Moses, of course, you think back to that time where Moses desired to see the glory of the Lord, you will remember that that's where God put and placed Moses as he passed by. He put him in the cleft of the rock. Or you think of Isaiah again and how he describes that same rock in the words of chapter 32 and the words of verse 2. He says, And a man shall be in, as an hiding place from the wind and as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Understand, men and women, when we think of this dove, and that rock that is spoken of is not other than Christ himself. For he is the resting place to the believer. He is the hiding place from the wind and the torrents that blow. He is the defense. He is the refuge to the defenseless against the fiery darts of the great adversary. And the psalmist could say, and we're singing it this morning, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. You see, that's where the dove finds her rest and her comfort. She's at home when she's in that place. You think of the homing dove. They only desire to fly home once they are released. And so it is with a child of God. In the world, they only find sorrow. We only find unpleasantries. The doves of Christ are not at home in this world, nor in its pastimes. But how sweet it is to be able to fly in and out forth in Christ, freely in Christ, to receive that daily portion of grains of His grace, to receive those crumbs of His mercy from His hand, to quench the thirst at the clear wells of salvation. Have you been there? Look again at her as she sits securely in the cleft of the rock. As any king in his castle, as a general in the camp of the army, the hunter cannot shoot at her there, the hawk cannot attack her there, the storm may rage around about her, but she has no fear for the storm cannot destroy the rock. The dove has a strong, sound foundation that neither trembles nor crumbles. And dear people, dear child of God, so it is for you. We have that solid foundation. All our foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The rock of our salvation is Christ. Our rock shall not be moved. Hence what Vernon Charlesworth wrote. He said, The Lord's our rock, in him we hide a shelter in the time of storm. Secure whatever ill betide, a shelter in the time of storm. O rock divine, O refuge dear, a shelter in the time of storm, be thou our helper ever near, a shelter in a time of storm. That's her defense. But we haven't finished yet. Because if you look 
And the rest of the part of that verse, you'll notice that this rock is riven. For that is what the words mean in the secret places of the stairs. Christ is that great rock that was riven for us. And the wrath of God against sin was poured out upon him. The secret places of the stairs are as bleeding wounds. We do not cling to the dry branches of self-righteousness. For those branches will be burned in the day of judgment as any dove that will be on it. We do not cling to our own devotion or some leafy covering and expect salvation therein. But this dove has found a resting place in the wounds of Christ. It's in his merit. It is in his sacrificial death. It was Christ who ascended those secret stairs. Those secret places hidden from view of man on the cross of Calvary as the darkness veiled the cross. He was to endure the sufferings for sin in his own body on the tree. He ascended Golgotha's brow that he might lay down his life, that he might shed his blood for his people. And the believer today has the knowledge that they are counted as righteous before God, all because of the wounds of the altogether lovely one. This is the foundation which stands when all else crumbles and fails. The dove's love may wane. Her faith may become like a flickering candle at times. Her zeal may grow dim. Her heart may become like a barren wilderness. Yet she rests secure. For praise God... It is not her love, it's not her faith, it's not her zeal or anything else to which she rests. Her strong fortress is none other than the wounds of Christ alone. And she knows that she is safe there. And she knows that she's pleasing to God when she's hidden in the secret place of the stairs. And if you know nothing of that refuge, we can only exhort you to come now, and you will know it. Indeed, we would use the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 28 says this, O ye that dwell in Moab, leave the cities, and dwell on the rock, and be like the dove that maketh her nest in the sides of the hole's mouth. Leave the old paganism behind. Leave the heathen ways behind in Moab. Get to the rock this morning. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock. Know what it is to be safe and secure from all alarms. Resting by faith in Jesus' blood and righteousness. We've looked at the dove. We've looked at her defense as in the cleft of the rock. You know, there's another little thought in this text, and that is her, his desire. For having noted who the dove is, as the Shulamite, as the church, as the believer, and having seen her resting place to where it is to be found, the text also speaks something of the desire of the groom for his bride. 
You hear his voice in these words. What does the Lord mean by them? What are we to understand by them? It amounts to a remarkable invitation which should be full of every encouragement for every child of God. His desire is to see our countenance. Let me see thy countenance, for it is comely. It's pleasing unto our bridegroom. What bridegroom does not want to see the face of his beloved? Whether it's on that wedding day, or indeed upon that day beforehand, where the union will be formed. And Christ desires to see the face of his bride, for she's covered with the golden feathers of his righteousness. She is a new creature in him. She is a light now in a dark place of this world. In her countenance there's that longing for heaven. There's that resistance to that which would draw her away from her beloved. The bridegroom in loving kindness loves to see the faces of his own upturned to him in adoration and in praise. And dear people, we must respond to him, for he has purchased us from the slavery and from death. He's made us precious in his sight. We must in all things lean upon him and speak his praise. When our beloved uh, desires our fellowship as he so graciously invites us unto himself, would we dare turn away from him? Would we dare forget him? Would we dare keep ourselves at a distance from him? The wonder of it all. Hope you see it. It's not that God's people enjoy the fellowship that we have in Christ, and we do. But it's that Christ's own desire is for, and he delights in his people's fellowship. It's the other way around. He desires to see our beauty because it is a reflection of his own. The world doesn't think much of the sight or the sound of Christ or the, or the church or the believer. Yet the Lord can never see too much or hear too much from us. I wonder did you fulfill his desire this morning? Even before you come out of the house of God. Was your countenance uplifted toward him? His desire is not only to see our countenance but it is to hear her voice. He says, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice. He delights to hear our voices and praise and offering petition unto him. We could, we could maybe say the Lord was pleased with his people last week who were able to make it out and to bring their petitions unto him in prayer. He delights to hear the voice of his people. Our voices are counted as sweet when we come as repentant, thankful, adoring, dependent children upon the Lord. Is what the desire of the Lord, is it illustrated for us when we think of that beloved disciple? Let me just turn you to John chapter 13 before we finish today. His desire is to see our countenance. To hear her voice. And I believe we can see it illustrated here. It's in the upper room. It's following that time where the Lord drew aside the garments and he washed his disciples' feet, a most menial task. 
And you see, see what, it, what it says in verse 23. He's indicated to them that one was going to betray him. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's only the way in which John describes himself. We're in the Gospel of John. You're reading about John. The disciple whom Jesus loved. But he is seen in our mind's eye as one who's that close to the Lord. He's leaning on the Savior's bosom. I don't want you to get into your mind your idea that the tables in those days were high tables like we will get to in a little while. They were more like low couch type things. And so it was conducive for one to be that close and to lie upon the bosom of the Lord and yet be still before that table. And John's head is in the bosom of the Savior and there his countenance would be toward the Lord. And his voice would be heard by the Savior. To the extent that John knows the one who's going to betray the Lord. Because you read on. It says, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Peter makes some indication. He makes some hand signal. John, will you you seek the Lord there? See which one of, of us is going to betray him. Verse 25, he then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? And he's that close. His head's on the bosom of the Savior. He's that close. He can just whisper that question to the Lord. Lord, who is it? That the others don't even hear it. Jesus answered, verse 26, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. John knew who would betray the Lord. Why? Because his countenance was before the Lord. His voice was heard by the Savior. He was that close. You know, that's how we also find it in the Song of Solomon. The figure of one leaning on the Savior's breast is found there too. Chapter 8, verse 5. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee under, up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Who is this? Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? That's how it ought to be with his bride, the church. That's how it ought to be with each one of us as individuals. The delight is a mutual enjoyment, one of the child of God with Christ and of the Savior with his redeemed. Does that not humble us? Does that not even raise our spirits to desire him more? To think that he regards it as a lovely thing to see us and to hear our voice? Speaking of him, speaking to him, singing his praises, pouring out our hearts unto him. 
O believer, one redeemed with precious blood, one who by God's grace has found the true resting place. You fled, as the psalmist could say to that rock that is higher than I. May you have the assurance today that you are not only in him, but he is also in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your countenance to him is lovely. Ah, your voice too is sweet. Why does he desire these things? It is so that we might see the work of God's grace more clearly what he has done for us in our lives. And be quickened on to greater praise. Never be ashamed to sing out the hymns. But he does so also for the sake of the angels and the world to display a beautiful sight before them and thus glorify his holy name before their eyes. The angels learn from God's redeemed. The world can see Christ in us. That's why God called Abram to take his only son Isaac and to offer him as a burnt offering. That's why Jacob had to wrestle with the angel and not let him go. It was to reveal the strength of God in our weakness. May we satisfy his desire in these days. May we show to the world our beloved. For we are Christ's dove. May the Lord bless his word to each of our hearts this morning. I trust for your encouragement. And for your comfort for his own namesake. Let's sing 569 in closing. O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. Thy blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Is that where you are this morning? Hiding in the cleft of the rock. 569, let's stand as we sing it.
you're not hiding in Christ this morning, come now. And here afterwards, as God's servant for your sake, you can be saved now. Make sure you're hidden in Christ. Lord, we thank thee for thy word. We thank the Lord that thou dost address as, O my dove. Lord, what a description. Lord, thy desire is to see our countenance and to hear our voice. For thy voice is sweet. Thy countenance is comely. We pray, Lord, that we might fulfill thy desires. We marvel, Lord, the great mystery, why Christ should delight in fellowshipping with his people. Because we're only old sinners saved by grace. We pray, Lord, you'd write thy word in our heart. We might go out with a song in our soul today, I'm hiding in thee. Part us with thy blessing. Give journey mercies home. Bring us back again tonight. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.